Do you want to stop yelling and have your child listen to? Well, I have exciting news for you. If you're hearing this right now, it means that the doors to mindful parenting are open at mindfulparentingcourse.com. This only happens for a limited time, and it may be perfect for you if you want to be that patient, calm parent, but you're afraid of being walked all over, you're losing it, and you want to be that steady, peaceful parent, you don't have a cohesive method, and you take in bad advice like just count to one, two, three. Mindful parenting is an evidence-based system that not only teaches you how to calm your reactivity, but offers you a ton of personal guidance. A lot of other parenting coaches talk about the best way to respond to your child, but guess what? They don't walk you through the research-proven practices that it really takes to create changes that actually last. Mindful Parenting teaches you the specific steps to create cooperative, loving relationships for life. In Mindful Parenting, you can learn how to stay calm, even if you find yourself shouting hourly now. Be present for your child, no matter what they're going through. Resolve conflicts easily without yelling or taking away the iPad. Set limits without your child resenting you for days afterward. And build trust between you and your child so that you avoid misery in the teen years. The doors are open now at mindfulparentingcourse.com. Unlike other programs in Mindful Parenting, we offer one-on-one coaching to every member and weekly drop-in coaching sessions. Don't wait anymore. You and your kids are worth leveling up. Go to mindfulparentingcourse.com and join now before the doors close again. That's mindfulparentingcourse.com. I'll see you there. You're listening to the Mindful Mama podcast, episode 93. Today, we're talking about happiness being coming from other people. Welcome to the Mindful Mama podcast. Here, it's about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. At Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you are thriving, when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm your host, Hunter Clark Fields, Mindfulness Mama Mentor. I coach overstressed moms on how to cultivate self-awareness in their daily lives and to take family and life to a new level of awakening. I've been practicing yoga and mindfulness for over 20 years. I'm the creator of the Mindful Parenting Course, and I'm the mom of two girls, ages 7 and 10. And I also have with me today my good friend and recurring guest. I can't get rid of her. Oy vey. <laughs> No, I will never let you go. <laughs> Carla Nomberg. And, and Carla, go ahead and introduce yourself. Thanks, Hunter. Um, my name is Carla Nomberg. I'm a clinical social worker and parent coach, and I'm the author of two books on mindfulness and parenting, and I just sold my third book. It's going to be called How to Stop Losing Your Feet with Your Kids. Can I swear? <laughs> I can never remember if I can oh, swear. Can I swear? That's no. what the so book I mean, is. No, it's a, that's so yes, exciting. How to Stop Losing Your Beat with Your Kids, except for in the title, actually, is the real word. And it rhymes so I'm going to be with writing with ship. ship. Sorry, does it rhyme what with ship? You? It rhymes with ship. <laughs> what are you saying? Okay, anyway, <laughs> our listeners are smart. They know what we're talking about. So I'm, I'm super excited to go write this book. And meanwhile, I'm working with my clients 
in the parent coaching, which is amazing. And I live outside of Boston with um, my seven and nine-year-old daughters and, and my husband and my kittens. And I love Hunter's podcast. Yay. Yay. And we are so grateful that you are here, dear listener. And we are going to be talking about uh, this really interesting article that uh, we both really resonated with called from the New York Times. It was an opinion piece in the New York Times called Happiness is Other People by Ruth Whitman. And I really was glad that I read it in particular because she talks about how she has written a book about happiness and anxiety in America. And she's noticed strain, particular strain of happiness advice that is like, you know, happiness comes from within. Happiness should not depend on other people. Happiness is an inside job. And it's kind of this idea of seeing this strain and, um, and, and kind of uh, emergence of even meditation, of self-actualization, of all these different things that that happiness should be engineered from the inside out. And so this is those are her words that it should be sort of engineered by the inside out. And she talks about how Americans have an this increase in solitary happiness pursuits. And she talks then we can go deeper into it, but she actually talks about that. In fact, a lot of research, research study after study shows that good social relationships are the strongest, most consistent predictor there is of a happy life, um, even yep. going so far as to call them a necessary condition for happiness. And so she kind of pits um, this idea of happiness as other people against the idea that happiness comes from within. So that, that's uh, my summary of the opinion piece. Do you think I got it all, Carla? I do. I do. And I, I love that she wrote this piece um, because this is one of my, my things, like the, the bee in my bonnet about kind of modern society and also modern parenting. Um, and I think that I tend to get a little less hung up on like happiness as a solitary pursuit versus something, you know, like being with other people is making us happy. I think that's one really important point. But the point that I get hung up on is this idea that modern culture is spoon feed, force feeding us, which is that we are responsible for our own happiness. And if we are not happy, it is because we are doing something wrong. And that if we aren't happy as parents, as mothers, and if our children aren't happy, it means because we're doing something wrong. So can I just go off on this for one minute, Hunter? Yes. Is that okay? Rock on. Because this is my thing. Oh my gosh. So <laughs> let's go back to what happiness is. Happiness is a feeling. And if you ask even the most like skilled scientists and researchers and psychologists and neurologists in the world to tell you what a feeling is, like they don't really know. It's really hard to describe. It's like this combination of bodily sensations and thoughts and like, I don't really know. But what we do know about feelings is we can't control them. We cannot force ourselves to feel a certain way and we cannot force ourselves to stop feeling a certain way. And one of the most um, surefire ways to drive yourself nuts is to get hung up on trying to make yourself feel a certain way and then blaming yourself when you don't or when you can't change your feelings. And this idea that we should be able to make ourselves feel happy is a setup from day one for a few different reasons. One, because we can't control our feelings. And two, because a lot of stuff happens in life that just isn't happy stuff. Like, you know, there's big unhappy stuff like earthquakes and mass shootings and 
cancer and illness and death. And then there's like little unhappy stuff, like your kid who goes totally rigid when you're trying to buckle them into their car seat or, you know, a difficult project at work that's not fun or a mom who disses you in the drop-off line and it's kind of like crappy and why did they do that? And so when we feel like we have to be persistently and consistently happy in the face of this unhappy stuff, not only do we feel like failures, but we also have no skills or strategies for like what to do when the yucky feelings come as they will. And so I, I, but having said that, I don't want to like just leave listeners being like, Oh, sorry, just give up. You shouldn't like try to be happy. Just go be suffering. Because I think that as, as Thich Nhat Hanh, who is literally a Zen master, so I guess he gets to talk about this stuff because he's a Zen master, you know, he says so wisely, he says, we can create conditions for happiness. Like we can try to do things that will make it more likely we will be happy. And, and we can notice when we're happy and like be psyched about it. But when you try to control it, that's not going to happen. So I think one of the things I love about these articles, this article is she is talking about one of the most powerful conditions for happiness, like spending time with people we love who are supportive is going to increase the likelihood that we will be happy. And so I think that's a really important thing to think. So that's my little like soapbox thing. So I'll stop now. <laughs> I love I wish I had some like applause sound effects uh, someday someday but anyway no I mean it okay, and it's interesting because the, you know you brought up a lot of things and there's a big range of subtleties I think and what we the way we can look at this and you know when you spoke about this idea that we can't just choose to be happy so I actually there was at one point in my life so this was my in my pre-meditation days I was struggling I I had these I had, you know, I would fall into these, I've told my, this story before, but um, one of the big reasons I went, came to meditation and mindfulness is because I would fall into these like pits of despair really frequently, like every week or couple weeks. And um, I would feel like I couldn't handle life. And so in a time like that, I was at, it was Borders Books. RIP Borders, we miss you. Anyway, I know. Um, <laughs> anyway, I was in a Borders books and I was looking around and I picked up some, I picked up like a self-help book and it was something about, it was something about happiness. And I was like, oh, I need, I need happiness. So like, let me find this book. And the basically the, the gist of this book was that you can be happy simply by choosing to be happy. So just choose to be happy. And I was oh, like, no, stop, <laughs> stop. don't say that people. And I was like, this is like, so I would, I legit, you know, I earnestly tried. I earnestly just tried to. Of course she did. Of course she did. (laughs) It was so pathetic. Like I was like, this sucks. I'm a failure. Basically everything you said, like I'm a failure and this isn't working because I couldn't just choose it. Right. I can't just choose happiness. And, and I think that uh, understanding that is, is really important. Just letting ourselves kind of off the hook, like that we can't just like flip a switch and make ourselves be happy. Like that just doesn't work. I think just letting ourselves off the hook like that can create a lot of relief in and of itself. Absolutely. And I, one of the things I work with a lot of my clients on is that it's okay if you are not happy in every moment of parenting. It doesn't mean you're a bad parent. It doesn't mean you're failing at parents parenting. It doesn't mean that, you know, your kids are going to be unhappy or you're not connected to them enough because 
I don't know anybody who's happy in every moment of life. And why should we expect something like that from parenting? And one of the things I, I try to say to parents a lot is, like, that's okay. You can be parenting at times. It's, it's just part of life. And so that means there are moments when it is deeply, a deeply unhappy experience. When it's, it's you know, when we are filled with rage or disappointment or fear or anxiety or exhaustion or confusion or whatever it is. And that's just part of the deal. And one of the paradoxical things we learn when we start to practice mindfulness is that the more that you can just sort of accept whatever is there, even if it's a really yucky thing, feeling, sensation, sort of the faster it's going to move on or pass. I mean, you feel all feelings, all feelings change and move on and pass. I heard one psychologist say, I haven't really tested this, that like really no feeling lasts longer than 15 minutes. I don't know if I'd buy that because like I've had entire days and weeks when I'm in a funk. But she was saying, she was sort of arguing that the intensity of a feeling, like the really sort of overwhelming intensity, if you just set a clock and wait 15 minutes, it'll pass. Mm. That may be true. I, I, I like the general idea. But I think that when we are expecting that we are going to be persistently and consistently happy parents and raise happy kids, we're setting ourselves up. And really what's more important to me than a consistently happy child is a child who can know what it feels like to be really unhappy, to be angry or confused or bored or anxious or whatever, sad, and, and feel that feeling and recognize it and know that they can tolerate it and they can like move on to that something will come next, that it will change, that they're not going to totally fall apart if they're not happy. And I think this goes back to the name of um, the author's book. So her name is Ruth Whitman. And it looks like her book is called America the Anxious, Why Our Search for Happiness is Driving Us Crazy and How to Find It for Real, which is kind of a paradoxical title. Um, and one of the things I do appreciate about this book is I think that one of the things that can happen, I haven't read the book, but I did just set order it off my library, so I want to read it. Um, <clears throat> but I think that when we are consistently searching and struggling and reaching for happiness, we get really worried about what's going to happen or what is happening when we're not happy. And when you realize that happiness is a thing that sort of shows up when you stop searching for it, that really does decrease your anxiety and it decreases your anxiety with your kids because you know, you can handle the not happy. Mm -hmm. And so you don't feel anxious about when it comes. I want to tell you about a great podcast that you should check out, especially if you ever deal with any school system, which you probably do. It's called Understood Explains. This season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ortube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. And this season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP and busts common myths about special education. So I checked out the episode on the difference between IEPs and 504 plans because my daughter Maggie uses a 504 plan and it was really, really helpful. It went over all the differences, which one's better, how to get them, different myths and what your rights are, all kinds of different things that you should understand if your child may need extra help in education through an IEP or a 504 plan. The tone is super helpful, friendly, and smart. I highly recommend you check it out. To listen to Understood Explains, just search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's it. Understood Explains. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? 
This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, whew, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I see that. I see that in my clients. I mean, as well, I, I was just working with a client this morning and um, she, <clears throat> we were talking, uh, you know, one of, you know, it was interesting. We had, uh, we t- looked at, she had had all these wins and been de- developing her mindfulness practice and was feeling the effects. And that was really exciting. And then, um, you know, and then we talked about some stresses and anxieties and I asked about what was her takeaway kind of from talking today. And she said that she still had a lot of work to do on how she handled stress. And it was really interesting the way that she framed it. Cause it was like, it was this framing it as if, um, that it it wasn't okay to have the stress. And I think that goes back to what you were saying. Like, it's like, if only we can get to the place where we can, we don't have the stress at all, or we don't have the anxiety at all. Like there's, there's something wrong with having the anxiety or having the stress and that just compounds it and just makes it worse and kind of spirals that out of control. But it's so, so common to feel like there's something wrong with me if I am stressed, if I am anxious. You know, right. um, it, it, I mean, and that, that is, that can go, you know, that can go on and on. But this idea of, of, it's interesting when you think about the idea of happiness, right? And like, we can't choose happiness. And I love that you brought in Thich Nhat and this idea that we can create the conditions for happiness. And I think that it's, 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 there's kind of like a middle path in some ways, like it's, it's hard to wrap our minds around, like some, some people say like, you can, you know, control everything. Like you're in charge completely of you and you have to take respect, radical responsibility for you. And then other people say, well, there's, you know, maybe in this realm, like there's, um, you know, that we, we can't control our feelings at all. But I really do think that there is like those, maybe both of those things are true in in a paradoxical way, right? Like there's a middle path there where we can create the conditions for happiness and we can start to become present to appreciate the things that make us happy more often. Like, I think if we look at the idea of appreciation versus happiness, like feel like appreciation, which is like gratitude, right, is so much more useful. And, um, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh says that we, um, you know, we have like pleasant, unpleasant and neutral experiences. And you may say that, um, and everything changes and, and moves, but you may say that a neutral experience, you know, you might say just walking down the street or washing the dishes or maybe is unpleasant. But say, let's say walking down the, the street to get your mail or walking down to your mailbox to get your mail is a neutral experience. And with um, 
with the right intention and the right mindfulness, we can actually, we can transform a neutral experience into a pleasant experience, you know? And so in that way, we can kind of create those conditions for happiness. Like we could, if we are in a space where this is just a neutral experience, we can say, oh, we can look around and say, what do I see that's, you know, how can I appreciate this beautiful tree that's growing here and, and have appreciate that this tree is giving me oxygen and have gratitude for this tree? Can I appreciate that the mail comes right to my house and it's so predictable and it's lovely? Or, you know, can I appreciate my two legs as I'm walking? Um, and I think that creating the conditions for happiness is kind of the middle path, right? Where we can say, well, I may not have total control and I, I may not, I may not have no, you know, but, you know, I may not have no, zero control, but I do have, what I do have control over is I can kind of, I can set an intention. I can create conditions for happiness. I can, I can start to move myself in the direction of appreciation, um, maybe versus, I'm not happy, so what's wrong with me? So I totally love this. I love everything you said. And I think one of the key points that you're really speaking to is what is the difference between a behavior, um, something we can sort of choose to do, and a feeling? Because I think mm, yeah, our culture yeah. is treating happiness like a behavior, like something we can choose to engage in. And yeah, I guess I can choose to smile, and I can choose to laugh, and I can choose to do things that are sort of placeholders for happiness. But at the end of the day, happiness is a feeling and I cannot choose to, like I can't force it to come. I can't choose to come, to make it come. Um, but what I can choose to do, like you were saying, is behaviors that will make it more likely that I will experience that feeling of contentment or happiness. And so, the t and just to give you two examples of things that I do on a regular basis, one is I try to go for a walk outside, like a vigorous walk every single day. And the reason, or get some kind of exercise, and the reason I do this is because it decreases my anxiety. And I literally think about it like I am this vessel, this jar, whatever your image is. And when it's all filled up with anxiety, there's not a whole lot of room for happiness. And so if I can do something that's going to somehow decrease the amount of anxiety in my head space, body space, wherever it lives, then there's room where happiness might be able to show up. And so going for a walk every day, like I have noticed over time that that is a thing that has a direct impact on my level of anxiety. And so that's a behavior I can choose to do. It's not a guarantee I'm going to be happy, but it makes it more likely. And then I think gratitude is actually um, a, a beautiful example because you're exactly right. It, it, it is a behavior. It's a practice. It's something we can choose to do. Yeah, one could argue it's also a feeling like we might suddenly feel grateful, but you can actually sort of think grateful thoughts. And so for me, you know, every night I am faced with um, a mountain of dishes and some nights I feel many nights, I feel really cranky about it initially. Like I'm, I'm tired and I just want to sit on the couch and watch terrible TV and I need to do these dishes and lunches. Oh my gosh, I can't stand making lunches. And so I work really hard to remind myself like, oh gosh, I'm so lucky that I have a home with a kitchen and dishes that I can clean. And the fact that there are dirty dishes means I had access to food and I can feed my family. And the fact that I can make lunch every day for my kids is something that I really need to not take for granted because there are millions of people in the United States and around the world who cannot, do not have the means to send their kids to school with a lunch every day. And when I remind myself of that, and that is a practice, like that's a thought I can choose to have, 
then I do find that there is more space for happiness and I am more likely to feel happy about um, whatever's happening. If it's not happy, then at least really a lot less cranky about it. So I, I love this idea of really thinking about behaviors and things we can actively choose to practice versus feelings that we can't really control, but we can make more or less room for. Thank you for clarifying that so beautifully. And I think that that also then really does point back to mindfulness in so many ways, because um, you're saying like, I can choose this thought, right? And, you know, if we're unaware of the sort of sea of thoughts we're living in, if we're unaware of the stories and the, the what our brain is, you know, this kind of like, I think of it as like a, a, a a factory, <laughs> like thinking factory. It's just churning out. That's, oh, yeah. I, I had the weirdest thought in my meditation this morning. And I thought I should just remember this one so I can tell people like what a weird thought I had just to like, <laughs> just to like point out how strange the brain is. Gosh, I couldn't think, oh, well, whatever. Anyway, like the, just being able to make a choice really comes back to having the awareness of what, what are the thoughts? You know, if we're completely stuck in the sea of the, uh, you know, of the negative thinking that is then uh, creating the conditions for unhappiness, right? It's kind of the behavior that's made probably very conditioned, probably very, you know, completely inadvertent um, and has roots in biology and our upbringing and all those things. The sort of negative cycle of thinking, like enable, in order to create, to, to create a a space in that pattern or to interrupt that pattern, we need to be able to see it at all. You know, we need to be aware of it. And it was interesting because I, I did a, I did a talk recently um, with a group of people and I felt a little bit bad afterwards because some of them like cried when I talked because I, I asked them, um, I asked them to kind of be aware of some of the thoughts they had in their heads when they had messed up in their, when they had quote unquote messed up in their parenting and to, um, yeah, to, to think of some of those thoughts. But I, my intention and for anybody who is there, who is listening, cause I imagine at least one of you is, um, I, uh, <laughs> cause she's, she's, she's in the course anyway, shout out. Um, I, my intention was really, um, I really wanted to just, allow people to just become aware of this is the what you're this is kind of the sea of the thoughts that you're swimming in and you you know in order to have any kind of choice in order to have, have choose a different thought like a different behavior in that way um we have to have have awareness of it and um and so so yeah so that that it all all comes back always in so many ways to mindfulness i think oh yes and i i, I do want to talk for a minute about choosing our thoughts because yeah Oh, that's a doozy. Um, <laughs> this is when we need the sound effect. Um, because I've had many people, both my clients and my friends who know that I'm like a mindfulness person, whatever that means, um, say like, I tried to switch my thoughts. Like I, I was having this horrible feeling, this horrible thought. And so I tried to look around me and notice the beautiful leaves and notice this and that. And the thought came back. It didn't work. And what I, what I try to say to them is, no, no, like you keep not choosing that thought. It's a practice. So we notice the thought. And then we come back to our breath or we come back to noticing the leaves or we come back to the sound of our footsteps or the sound of our children's voice or whatever it is. That thought is going to come back because our brain wants to think. That's what it's designed to do. Our brain doesn't give a hoot if it's a helpful thought or a ridiculous thought or a skillful thought or an unskillful thought. It just wants to make all the thoughts. And so the way I try to pose it to people is 
which is better for you? Like getting totally submersed and drowning in all these awful, irritating, anxiety, whatever thoughts, or like having the thought and then coming up for a breath of air. And yes, the thought pulls you back down, but then you get to come up for a breath of air. And if you keep sort of redirecting your attention, notice and redirect, notice and redirect, like it's A, it's going to be a much less, a much more pleasant experience than it might have been otherwise. And B, eventually those thoughts will become less sticky. It might take longer than you think, but like give it time. So please, just to our listeners, if you're thinking you should be able to choose your thoughts, um, that's, a, that's a practice. It's a hard one. It's one we are all, all working on all the time. So um, please don't feel like you are failing if these unpleasant or unskillful thoughts keep coming back. Yeah. And I, I was thinking about like a parallel to this for, for parenting, you know, I think I was like wondering like, why do we think it's just going to work instantly? Right. And it's kind of like the right. way, kind of like the way so many, like in the mindful parenting course, so many people are like, well, I did this thing and it didn't, it worked. And then they did it again. You know, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> well, you know, why culturally do we think our kids are going to hear something once and then just get it for the rest of their lives? <laughs> You know, like, but I can't even do this. Like, I know I shouldn't eat the Halloween candy, and guess what? I'm still freaking eating it. Like, and, and, and to top it off, the part of our brain that can, like, notice what we're thinking and make a more skillful choice, that is our prefrontal cortex that's right, before, right behind, like, our forehead. And it's the part that does get stronger um, and sort of more robust with meditation. That part of your brain literally doesn't exist in little kids. There's nothing there. It's like empty, unhelpful space. <laughs> I mean, it's getting there. There's some neurons, but the research seems to suggest that that part of your brain isn't fully developed till you're even like in your early twenties. Yes. So we are asking when we are trying to remind our kids, like, please don't put your finger in your nose or like, please remember to close the car door or please just like poop on the potty or whatever it is that we're trying <laughs> to get our kids to do. And we're like, why didn't it work? I told them, well, they're, they're, they're just trying to make the little neurons. They don't exist yet. Like they're trying to get them to connect, but it takes a whole lot of patience and a whole lot of repetition. And that's why it's so important to like take care of ourselves and be kind to ourselves because it's hard. Yeah. Yeah. It is hard. It takes, it takes a lot of repetition and a lot of, a lot of patience. I think maybe, maybe it's our, maybe it's our instant gratification culture. I don't know, but, um, one thing that I wanted to touch on that, you know, because in this article, you know, I feel like she's uh, sort of, um, and Ruth, I love this article if you're listening, but I feel like she's kind of setting up the, um, in some ways, the sort of meditation yoga world as like the, the enemy here to shoot down in her article a little bit because she pits this idea of being social against the idea of, of having, um, you know, a quiet time and, and med mindfulness or meditation and things like that. And, um, and you know, she, and I think it is really, um, I think what I wanted to say about that is that it's, it's really a 
paradox and it's really both, you know, I mean, I think in some ways, maybe um, because we are such a social, like we just emerge from a social context. Like that is the, so that is the context from which we emerge. And so the, that's almost seen in some ways as the fabric, right? Of from which we all kind of emerge, right? And, and, and so the practices of looking inward, the practices of being able to sit by ourselves and being able to tolerate sitting by ourselves and sitting maybe um, with our thoughts and all those things, kind of those were sort of the radical, um, unusual things <laughs> from, yeah. you know, compared to the fabric of a social, a strong social network from which humans emerge. So I think that if we kind of take a step back, that's sort of like the bigger perspective. And that because we evolved in this social fabric, but we also evolved to be aware of threats very vigorously, it, it does take, it does take, um, effort. You know, if we just kind of go with the flow, there's a lot of anxiety and unhappiness that will happen. So these practices of mindfulness, they, um, you know, of meditation, yoga, those things, they, they do, you know, create those conditions for happiness. They can, they help us foster the conditions for happiness because they can help us interrupt those thoughts. They can help us become more aware of ourselves and things of that. So I feel like it is both. But I really, really appreciate her attention to the fact that we are spending so much less, so much time alone. And I thought this was really, really eye-opening for me. Um, She said that something like, here it is, nearly half of all meals eaten in this country are now eaten alone. Um, Teenagers and young millennials are spending less time just hanging out with their friends than any generation in recent history, um, you know, replacing kind of real world interaction. Uh, And, you know, and uh, this one was so, so shocking for me. So I'll let you take it after this. But this idea that um, there was a Bureau of Labor Statistics time use survey, and it showed that the average American now spends less than four minutes a day, uh, quote, hosting and attending social events. And that covers all types of parties. And and that's basically 24 hours a year, basically barely enough to cover, you know, Thanksgiving dinner and a a birthday party, right? Um, So we're just not spending that much time with each other um, anymore. And that, that's really, uh, that's really kind of shocking to me. And, but it, it really kind of makes a lot of sense from what I he- see and hear about people feel so busy, people feel so rushed. And then we spend so much time just recovering kind of in front of the TV. Um, so I don't know what, what's your take on that part, Carla? Well, Hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it but I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free. 
Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. Yeah, I I think that, um, I think it's complicated. And I, you know, those those tiny statistics are really fascinating. They, They get a huge amount of data that they draw from. And I mean, she, you know, she's addressing some pretty complicated dynamics in a relatively short article, which is why I'd love to dive into her book. Um, but here's what I would say is I would encourage listeners who feel like this is a, a, a growing edge or learning edge or sharp edge in their lives to, to sort of reflect on it because you know, I think about the fact that she's saying that people aren't hosting as many events or going to as many events. And I know that for me, I don't like parties aren't my bag. Like, you know, so there are ways to be social that work for each of us. And so I I tend to get not so wrapped up in the statistics because I think people are sort of bad reporters about things. And, you know, I don't know what the actual stats are, but what I would encourage people to reflect on is that um, social interactions, and I'm talking about in real life, I'm not talking about Facebook, which I really think contributes to this false culture of happiness because everybody puts up the happy pictures. And mm-hmm. I think that's why people like Glenn and Melton of the Monastery and Boonmi Latitam, sorry if I butchered her name, who wrote The Honest Toddler Facebook feed or t- Twitter feed. I think that's why people gravitate to them because they're so honest about life and parenting and all this stuff that you really feel like you're connecting to a real person. So I think there is incredible value in connecting either over the phone or um, in real life with actual people. And I think just really noticing how does it work for you? Like, is it, is it finding a support group with other moms or other parents? Does that feel sort of the most helpful to have someone there to kind of orchestrate and coordinate things? Or is it just chilling on the playground um, when you're picking your kids up from school, or is it finding time on the weekends? Cause maybe you're a parent who works all week and you don't do drop off and pick up, but sort of noticing what are the social interactions that you're having in your life and what kind do you need more of? Because one of the things I work with a lot of moms on is like, who are your mom's peeps? And if a lot of us end up hanging out with the parents because it's convenient because we're all busy and we're running around and whatever. So it's the moms we see at drop off and pick up. It's the moms or, or dads who are the parents of our kids' friends and they want to have a play date. And if we're lucky, those are people that are really supportive and, and connected and kind and empathic. Um, and if we're unlucky, you know, those are the parent interactions that we come away from them feeling less than or ashamed or embarrassed or confused or we doubt ourselves. And that's, 
that's not what any of us need. I think our brains can go there well enough on their own without somebody else's help. So just taking some time to notice, you know, when you are with your peeps, I, I love that word. I don't know. It's kind of eighth grade, but whatever. When you're with your people, does that work? I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> when you are with your, I know, oh no, coffee and coffee. When you are with your crew, you know it because you come away from those in, interactions feeling supported and connected and confident and like funny and maybe even dare I say a little bit happier. And you have this sense that even if you don't, even if you're not on top of it, whatever it is, life or parenting or whatever, you will be on top of it again and you have what it takes to get on top of it. And so when, when I encourage people to think about like socializing, first of all, think about what works for you. Are you more of a one-on-one person? Are you more of a, you know, group or crowd? Or do you like kind of more orchestrated social interactions like going to some kind of dance class or something? Um, or do you prefer kind of organic hangouts? Whatever works for you, I don't think it really matters. But then paying attention to how do you feel while you're with these people and and after you spend time with them. And the goal really is that, again, you feel supported and empowered and, and psyched and connected. And if you're not feeling that way, it doesn't mean they're bad people or you're bad people. It just means right now they're not the people for you. And so what can you do to sort of find those connections? And it's not easy, but it is worth it. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I think that's the thing is like make the effort. And she has some more scary statistics, statistics about how dangerous it is not to have strong social interactions, which I will not share, but I'll let you guys check out. But, uh, you know, and I think that, um, you know, maybe, you know, who knows, maybe it is going to a meditation class. I taught a meditation class uh, this past Sunday. And you know what? We talked in our meditation class. We... <laughs> like just solitary silence just so you know anyway um but yeah and I think what you said Carla is absolutely right and and maybe this is just a wake-up call and I and I and that's why I really wanted to talk with you about it here on the podcast was just like like this is a wake-up call that we are in a culture where you know we're spending our time on Facebook or, or social media and or on Netflix and things like that and and can we really think, well, what are, what are my priorities? Like we have this incredibly short life. It goes by really yeah. fast. I know. I, I, I always got to bring in that reminder of death. Sorry, I'm so morbid guys. <laughs> but, yeah. but, but, you know, I mean, it, the truth is that human connection is one of the most powerful things that feeds us really in a deep, soulful way and you know what kind of those connections do you need more of and and how ca- can you be active in cultivating them and it's actually it's you know and it isn't really that easy because of the way our world is now so you really have to kind of be active like and in fact if you know yourself like you might know you're kind of an introvert so actually I'm gonna oh no, my husband so he has <laughs> he, he's, he's he has this he's so he's so funny because he's this like kind of very uh, kind of very cerebral introvert kind of guy, but um, he has had read many years ago, had been read, reading the studies about how important, you know, a good social network was. So because he had read these studies, he thought, okay, well, I will be more conscious about cultivating my social network. And so he is very conscious about cultivating his social network. And he has like this little list of his friends that he goes through and makes sure he's seen them all in a fairly regular basis, which I think is so like cute and systematic, which I love. I love you, Bill. And I think that's such a smart, like if you know yourself, like that's such a smart way to do it. Right. But, 
but can we be a little more conscious of reaching out? And one thing that I really like, and I, um, in my own community, I live in a, a little kind of funky little town and uh, called, called Arden in the Ardens in Delaware. And one of the moms whose kids go to the same school as I go to, she, uh, she's actually, actually, I think Carly, you, we know this mom in common because she, I think she knew you from Newton. Anyway, oh, anyway, awesome. she, she wants, she knew there was this awesome book club in Newton. So she, she created that here. And so we have this like mom's, we, we have book club like every month or something. And, you know, half of us maybe read the book and, or not or whatever, you know, but I'm so grateful for her for kind of creating this structure for us all to make time to come together. Um, so, you know, I'm just asking the, um, the listener, you know, what, you know, what can you, how can you kind of just make this more of a priority in your life? How, how can you cultivate those friendships and those just those social interactions that, you know, that do feed us? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, it's, um, the good, I mean, the good part about it is if, when it works, it's really fun. So it's not like go and eat your broccoli. It's like do the thing. It's actually <laughs> going to be fun. Right. Which is good. And you know what? Being, like, yeah. You're going to talk to me about broccoli. I don't want to talk totally about broccoli. I totally like broccoli. I mean, oh, God. so I roast with the vegetables. people. You have to roast your broccoli. Like stop steaming the broccoli. Oh. The broccoli does not want to be steamed. It's miserable that way. You have to roast it at like 400, 450 degrees with some olive oil and salt. My kids were like, this is the best broccoli. <laughs> Sorry. God. You know what my kids like? My kids like when I take so a frozen cool. broccoli out of the bag and dump it in a bowl <laughs> with some water and put it in a freaking microwave. And they eat it. And even the neighbor kid, whose mother is an amazing cook, which I am not, came over and asked for my broccoli, my frozen steamed broccoli. So <clears throat> That's so funny. That's so funny. I just happen to be, maybe that would be my parenting win for this week. Having said that, roasted Brussels sprouts. I did not even try a Brussels sprout until I was 36 years old. And then I tried it and I was like, oh my gosh, roasted Brussels sprouts are actually really good. They are. They are really good. So I, you can ever grow. Tried- I am an evolving human being. You can Don't eat cheese, yeah, right, Carla? Carla, can you eat cheese? Oh, yeah. Oh, can I eat cheese? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you need to try some freshly grated Parmesan on your roasted Brussels sprouts. Just saying. <gasps> That's amazing. <laughs> I would totally do that. Yeah. Oh. It- all right. That's really good. As long as you don't talk to me about kale, we're okay. I can't deal with the kale. Okay. And so- don't start with the kale chips. It doesn't work. It's not a thing for me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. So I think that um, I think that we've covered this article, and I hope that you guys um, will. I'll link to it in the show notes at mindfulmamapodcast.com. So I hope you check it out. And Carla, we're going to end with our parenting wins and fails. What we don't really have a protocol through this. Should we just start with wins? Start with fails? I don't know. What do you want to do? Yeah, I will tell you my parenting win for last night, and I'm just going to. I have a win. So daylight savings time can bite me because it's totally screwing us up. And it's like, you know, we're halfway through the week and we're still a mess. Um, And last night I picked my girls up from school. And by the time we got home, it was dark and they were tired and I was tired. So, you know, what my straight up parenting win was I fed them boxed mac and cheese and they ate it in front of the TV. And I sat on my phone and I read Ryan Reynolds Twitter feed. And if you have not read (laughs) Ryan Reynolds Twitter feed, you need to go do this because his tweets about parenting are hilarious. And some parents might be like, why is that a win? Like (laughs) processed food, TV, mom ignoring on cell phone. And I will tell you why. 
because <laughs> that because I stopped and I looked at our family and I looked at where we were all emotionally and physically and we were exhausted and overwhelmed and done and we had a great night because I wasn't fighting with them. I wasn't mm. so like I I had limited reserves and I just was like, this is what we can do. And so the girls laughed at their ridiculous TV show. I laughed at Ryan Reynolds' hilarity. We turned off the TV. We got ready for bed. We weren't fighting about stuff. We read Eloise, which is the greatest book in the history of books. And if you haven't read Eloise, you need to go read it. And like, it was what I could do last night and I did it. And this wasn't an example of good enough parenting or like, it's okay because I promise tomorrow we'll do like you know, watching math at home and I'll make them read their 40 minutes and then I'll lead them to a yoga mindfulness and I'll make up for it. Like, no, this was good parenting because we were chill last night. Like nobody was fighting or crying and I wasn't nagging and like, it was a good night. And so that I'm just going to call it a straight up parenting win. I love that, Carla. And you know what I love about that is that underneath that is this just this uh, self acceptance. It wasn't like you had these feelings, thoughts of like, you know, or maybe you did, I don't know, but like, you know, it wasn't like this, this, this internal drama of, oh, this isn't good enough. It was like, this is what we have. This is where I am. So this is what is. And, and I think that's beautiful. I'm so glad you shared that. Thank you. Yeah. And what, let's hear your win. What was it? My win was actually just a couple of hours ago. Um, at my girls' school, they have watch me work day, which is this Montessori thing. You watch them work anyway. Um, it was watch me work day and I had learned about it like a week, two weeks ago. Obviously I, I need some calendar help in my life. But anyway, I learned about it about two weeks ago and my Wednesday morning was totally full. And I was like, oh, I'm not going to be, you know, I'm not going to be able to go to your watch me work day. And I could just see the disappointment in my Aww. daughter's face. So I just canceled my, a couple appointments and I rescheduled and I made it to watch me work day and it was really wonderful. It was really sweet. They, That's great. they, she, she appreciated that, um, for sure. Um, especially good my job office. mama. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. Thanks. So my, uh, parenting fail is not just one. It's a, it's a repetitive, uh, habit I've noticed in myself that is totally a mindfulness thing. Well, it's a mindlessness thing. Um, which is that I will snap at my daughters for doing something that they're not actually doing. So like, you know, <laughs> I've asked them four times to please stop picking their nose and then the hand goes up to the face or it's like somewhere near the face and I'm like snapping at them to stop picking the nose. And then when I actually look, like they weren't actually picking their nose in that moment or I'm like yelling them to put on their shoes. And then when I actually peek my head around the corner, they are putting on their shoes when I'm already been yelling at them about it. <laughs> <laughs> and so this is just coming, like, this is not about my kids. This is about me and my anxiety or my tension or my rush to get things done. And I just need to, like, I've noticed this habit is creeping back on me and I need to stop and slow down and just look at my kid and see what she is doing before I bite her head off. So mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's not a huge one. Like, it's not a huge parenting fail, but um, I definitely have noticed that it's unpleasant. Like it's, it's unpleasant to have somebody snap at you when you weren't doing anything wrong. So um, this is just me needing to kind of slow down and actually take a look at my kid and then decide if I want to bite her head off or not. Yeah, 
Yeah. <laughs> my fail is, uh, my, my, my wins and fails are all fairly logistic this week, this time. <laughs> my, my fail is like, my daughter is growing and I can't keep her in shoes. Like, I just like, she's like, mom, I don't have any yeah. sneakers. I have nothing to wear. I have this one pair of shoes. And like, she's just growing. And I'm like, I just like, it's just so hard for me to, get to the store like I hate going shopping for that kind of thing yeah just like um but it's funny because like I assume that's my job right and why don't why don't why doesn't Phil assume that's his job like he just that's this is like a whole cultural thing anyway I'm noticing about this but anyway that is my that's my fail at the moment I actually would say that it's your kids fail for growing (laughs) what's wrong with you (laughs) just put it on them no, I know. I can't keep them in pants. They're walking around like there's a flood. And I'm like, that's okay. Winter's coming. Your ankles will freeze off in Boston. It's fine. No. So, yeah. It's um, hard. It's hard to get it all done. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on once again, Carla, on the Mindful Mama podcast. And mm-hmm. where can people once more find you and the work that you're doing? Uh, they can just go to CarlaNomberg.com um, and and they can also Google Mindful Parenting on Psych Central. That's my blog. Uh, so the Mindful Parenting Psych Central blog or uh, CarlaNomberg.com. Thank you so much, Carla. Awesome. And thank you so much for listening, dear reader, uh, listener. <laughs> I really appreciate your presence here and um, a great way to, of course, support the podcast is to leave us an iTunes review. I am more grateful for it than you actually realize because it makes a big, big difference. And actually, we're really fairly close to um, the 100, uh, 100 reviews. So I would love to get 100 reviews by the end of the year. So please, please help me do that. And, and while you're there, make sure you subscribe. And finally, uh, we'll just thank wonderful Bill for the music as I like to do. And that's it. Have a great week, guys. Namaste. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips.